Welcome to Beers, Business, and Balls, brought to you by House Enterprise, presented by Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. It is Tuesday, May 4th. It is going to be May, as they say, episode 49 here with Will Tondo. I'm Jake Zimmer, coming at you from Providence, Rhode Island. And we might have the coolest guest we've ever had on today. Uh, Brendan O'Donnell. What a guy. We've got about, I'd say, an hour or more uninterrupted with him. Um, His accolades speak for themselves. But all in all, that was one of the coolest interviews we've ever done. Yeah, definitely one of the biggest gets. Coolest guy. Sigma Chi, too, was a nice little piece of information we found out later on. But, I mean, he is living the dream right now. He... Quit a job that he wasn't happy with, traveled the world, biked a ton, and then decided, hey, I want to get into the hospitality industry. And then that later took him to Newport, which originally was Newport Storm, but Newport Craft and Distilling. Um, just incredible, incredible story. He gave us a wonderful care package that we're going to post up on the Instagram when this story, when the uh, podcast drops. He was, I mean, the beers were great. The whiskey was even better. The story was awesome. It was just, I'm still speechless about it. He was a very, very cool dude. That is Brendan O'Donnell, the CEO of Newport Craft Brewing and Distilling Company, the founder of GNP Acquisition Corp., which you can find on the New York Stock Exchange. GAPA.U is the ticker symbol. He's a baseball card hobbyist. He's one of the most well traveled men on the face of the earth, honestly. Big car guy, too. I don't think we talked about cars in our interview, but that would have been something cool. Um, What a conversation we had with Brendan O'Donnell. We hope you leave uh, just as inspired as we were. We're going to do the whole show with him, beers, business, and balls. We hit all three of them throughout. So let's dive into it. Here's our show with Brendan O'Donnell for episode 49. (laughs) All right, everybody, with us this week... We have a special guest, a guest we're very, very excited to have. Just found out he's a Sigma Chi as well, so in Hawk. Brendan O'Donnell, the CEO mm-hmm. of Warcraft and the man of many talents. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, uh, my wife and I uh, were on a Quidnick Island for about 400 plus days. Um, my wife was pregnant. Now I have a six-month-old. And we had a wedding in Florida last week and decided to stop off in uh, Virginia where we got married kind of by Colonial Williamsburg, but unfortunately, while it's beautiful, the internet is not favorable here. So doing what I can to uh, stay in touch with everything going on, but I'd be uh, lying if I said it wasn't nice to kind of get away from the island for a little bit. Well, I think, Brendan, you have the distinct honor of being the first guest on Beers, Business, and Balls. That's called it on a hardwired phone. So welcome <laughs> to 2014 or 15 or whatever it might be. But happy to have you here regardless. You know, that makes a lot of sense because I also secretly have a flip phone because I've never gotten out of uh, uh, that stage in my life, I guess. I loved having a BlackBerry when I was working in finance and I have an iPhone, but I do have a bat phone where I do need, uh, I need to be in a situation where I need service. And since there's about 10 of us in the world that still have flip phones, I get right on. So it's really good. So I guess it does make sense that I'd be your first uh, guest calling in from a hard line. (laughs) Well, hey, we love to hear it. I mean, nothing wrong with that. You're, hey, in a couple of years, it's probably the cool thing to have a, a flip phone. iPhones are going to be the dying trend. Yep. <laughs> you heard it here first. You heard it here first. So let's just, you know, dive right in. So before you got into the world of beer and before you got into corporate America, 
you were a student at Roanoke College. You know, tell us some experience that kind of formed your life and took you into the direction of where you were heading post-grad. Well, um, it's hard to kind of wrap up into one thing because I have so many different interests. And since I was young, I always had several interests. It was kind of funny when I was in high school, um, I played three sports at the varsity level, but I also was kind of a punk rocker and loved skateboarding. So it was kind of a split personality and I wanted to do everything. I loved reading. I loved skateboarding. I loved playing football. I loved music. I loved business. I couldn't really make up my mind because there's so many things that I liked and it wasn't just in and out. Like I just kind of fully immersed myself into a bunch of different things. And I always kind of learned differently than everyone else. Um, I don't know if it was because I had ADHD from a young age or I just kind of see things differently than other people. But um, while people would always kind of limit themselves in their head on what they can't do, I always kind of said, what can I do? And I've kind of brought that philosophy into my professional career where when I, when I got out of high school, I went to Roanoke College in Virginia. I applied to actually 40 different schools because I couldn't decide if I wanted to play football or baseball. And I really wanted to play football in college. And I went down to Roanoke and I loved it so much. It was the one school that didn't have a football program. So I ended up um, joining a fraternity like people do that go to division three schools that aren't big time athletes. And I joined uh, Sigma Chi. Um, Roanoke was a small 2000 student um, liberal arts college in Salem, Virginia. And it was the best experience of my life. Um, I didn't really know what it meant to go to college just like any other freshman. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to major in. I knew it was going to be business because I'm from New Jersey. I knew that I wanted to work in New York because that's what everyone else did. But I didn't really know what business meant. Um, I didn't know all the different kind of end markets and things that you could do within business. I just thought you put on a suit when you're 21 years old after college and you take the train into New York and you go to a big office and you get told what to do. And I had a lot of really strong and good influences in my life. My dad is very successful. He worked... Uh, for a very large insurance company for the last 30 years. I have several uncles that were strong influences, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I just assumed when you became a professional that you just sucked it up and you got paid and that was that. I didn't really fathom that you could do something that you enjoyed. So um, after college, I got into finance, um, but I should backtrack a little bit. When I was actually at Roanoke, I was social chair for Sigma Chi and I was pro consul, which means vice president for the non-Sigma Chi's that are on the podcast. And um, Social chair was really the first thing that really opened up my eyes to like having a good time, not just from a partying standpoint, but I really enjoyed making other people happy and being creative with um, different events that people maybe just would not think about as much as I would, or really giving people a good time. Because at the end of the, at the end of the day, the thing that always drew me to it was memories. When I was in college, we didn't have social media. We had cameras where you would take a picture and you'd print it out. And I'm not that old, but I'm old enough where we missed Instagram, thank God, when I was in college. And one of the things that I loved doing was providing memories. And some of the best memories of my life are from college. So, Brendan, after that was over, you graduated from Roanoke, you enter into the workforce, and you start your career off. So what were some of your first career experiences? And then what were some of those aha moments that you had that you knew you wanted to do something fun? When I got out of college and I was in finance, I did about a year and a half training program at a company called Ace, where uh, my father worked. I was a underwriter for um, large national accounts, which was companies over a billion dollars. I was essentially an analyst that was tasked with um, underwriting insurance and making money off of large companies, really analyzing risk. And 
I managed about $50 million of business by the time I was like 25 years old. And frankly, it got very easy for me. And the whole thing didn't really make sense because coming out in 2009 during a terrible recession, I just kind of understood how the finance markets worked and my job. And it was pretty easy. And the thing that I didn't like about it was I wasn't getting promoted or anything, not because of my skill set, but it was more because of my age. I was doing a job at 23 that a lot of 40 year olds were doing, and I was going to be limited to from compensation and responsibility solely based on my age. And I didn't like that. So I got lucky because my, uh, my parents actually moved to London when I was about three years into my professional career and they did not sell their home in New Jersey. So I made the decision to move back to New Jersey and commute about an hour and a half each way um, every day and save up money so that I would ultimately kind of build up a war chest that I could quit my job and do something that I loved, even though I didn't know what that would be. And um, during my professional career, I would do things on like New Year's Eve, where in New York City, you go to these nightclubs or you'd go to these different events and you pay $300 for a ticket and you're one of 10,000 people there. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And I never get to see any of my friends. So me and my friend, Nick and my friend, Mike decided that we were going to start throwing our own New Year's Eve parties. And we rented out uh, the roof deck of the Scholastic Building in New York our first year. And it was about $10,000. We did it eight, eight months in advance. And we set up our own alcohol, our own insurance, their own staff. And we ended up selling tickets for 400 people and making a ton of money, pure cash. And I was like, maybe I'm onto something. Maybe I can actually do this for a career. I mean, it doesn't feel like work. I thoroughly enjoy it and I'm pretty good at it. So after about six and a half or seven years at uh, my former company, um, I quit. And at that time I was relatively out of shape being a former athlete and um, was kind of a deteriorating 20, mid 20 year old. And um, I think I was 25 at the time. And I was like, I want to kind of get myself back together and I want to take a little break from work. I've allowed myself that by saving up some money and I want to just kind of get my head on straight and figure out what I want to do. So challenging myself, I quit in April and I signed up for a 108 mile bike race from, uh, from Penn Station to Montauk Point. I'd never done a bike race before, but I wanted to lose 20 pounds and I wanted to kind of get myself physically back on track. And then I wanted to do something to get mentally back on track. So I signed up for a bike race and then I signed up to go to Africa for four months to volunteer on a vervet monkey um, reserve, reserve, which was a crazy experience. And I was like, you know what? I got to just do stuff that's different to kind of reset myself. So I trained for the bike race in Florida for two months. Uh, I did about 2,500 miles of training. And then I did the race in about eight and a half hours for my first bike race. And then shortly after, took an 18-hour flight to South Africa, was able to hang out with some monkeys and some cool people from all around the world for a couple months. And then came back home in August and one of my friends reached out to me and was like, do you want to be involved in this bar project that I'm working on? Um, we had a guy that was going to be in charge of the operations. He fell through. There's an opportunity to invest in it and we need someone to run it. So I wasn't doing anything else. So I said, absolutely. So I invested all my savings into the bar. Um, it was called 310 or is still called 310 Bowery Bar. And um, I was head of operations for about two years. We quickly grew the bar into one of the most popular spots in New York. It became like, I think Time Out New York rated a top 10 bar in New York City. It was 23 and over. We would get a ton of celebrities, athletes. Um, it was an amazing, amazing place. And we were able to pay all of our investors back within the first like eight months. Um, it was just, we struck gold. And I understood that a lot of it was luck, but a lot of it was also planning and doing things the way we knew that we could.
Uh, let's transition to the craft beer scene. So before you entered, you noticed that there was a slight boom. You know, it started to pick up some pace and get some popularity. What made you to decide to take the plunge into the craft beer scene? And what are you doing now in terms of the hospitality world, craft beer, you name it? It was around 2015 or so. Um, there was a lot of craft breweries popping up. Other half, Montauk. I think we were probably two of the first. We were, I think, the first bar to serve other half and Montauk, which is if you know craft beer, those are other half is insane. And Montauk's a very well-known kind of regional brewery out of the Hamptons. Um, I would go to the Hamptons every summer and I saw the way Montauk did things and the lifestyle brand it kind of was and how people just associated summer with, with, the, with the can labels. And um, I kind of logged that in the back of my head and saw how the owners would come in and sell their product. So I eventually met my wife at the bar. Um, we went on a trip to Newport, Rhode Island, where her parents had a house. And the first thing I did was look to see if there was any breweries or distilleries. I couldn't find any, but I heard that there was one on JT Connell Highway, which is in the north end of Newport, and went over there in 2016 and sat down with the previous owner and asked if they'd be willing to sell or join up. And after about a year of negotiations, we closed the deal on November 15, 2017. Um, we bought 70% into the company. We wanted them to stay on for a little bit to have a transition. They've been doing it for about 19 years at that point. They'd started right out of college, and there we were. We we had a brewery. We had a distillery. It was one of the oldest ones in New England. We had a plan. I had this kind of thesis about breweries that I'd come up with where the whole industry was pretty inefficient, where um, <clears throat> just like a lot of other manufacturing industries, if you farm out your product to contract it, your margins are terrible, and it, you're one big event away from kind of collapsing. And I knew that two roads and even – some other breweries in New England, like Dorchester and um, a couple other big ones, they not only make their own beer, but they contract out for others. So I kind of was like, why don't you just contract for yourself and acquire the IP of these other brands? Because the barrier to entry for a brewer became very easy or very little because in, I think it was around 2012, not only was equipment getting cheaper, but you could essentially just be a logistics company and outsource your product to these big um, facilities. I knew that there was a lot of brands that weren't making their own product. They were, they were home brewers and they were designing their own, their recipes, but they weren't actually making it. So my idea was that if we accumulated the right kind of brands, we could put them under one umbrella. And then not only would we ever not run at like 90 or 95% capacity, but we could also buy distribution, which is a big thing for brewing, especially now since there's so many different breweries, it's hard to get into big states. So the first brand we acquired was Brave and Brewing out of uh, Bushwick, Brooklyn, I carried them at 310. I knew the story well. Um, it was a brew that was an original recipe from Czech immigrants. Um, and then Radiant Pig, um, where we acquired the, the brand IP, but we also brought on Rob Peel, who um, is an amazing talent, uh, not only as a brewer, but also as a designer. He was a professional marketing director for a lot of his career and then always wanted a homebrew. So he came on the C-suite like executive team with me. And from there, we, uh, we've really grown the brand. When we took over in 2017, we were doing about 1,600 barrels of beer a year. And uh, last year, even during the COVID pandemic, we did about 9,200. This year, we're projected to do over 15,000. So we're growing very rapidly. And on top of that, um, I help manage our hospitality assets where I'm overseeing some different investments that we've done um, in the food space and also large-scale events. And I'm also now the CEO of a SPAC called GMP Acquisition Corp, where 
we've kind of used this knowledge that we've acquired on a small scale and we raised $175 million through hedge funds and listed ourselves on the New York Stock Exchange through Bank of Montreal in March. And we now have a SPAC and we're targeting, um, I can only really say things that are public in the S1, but we essentially are targeting companies that we've deemed heritage where um, they're industries like we know, they're industries that have been around for a while, like brewing and distilling that need a little bit of a disruption, a little bit of a kick in the ass. and. Um, trying to make them more efficient and build a competitive platform and kind of use the competencies and the values that we've done on a small scale to a much larger scale. So that's kind of the quick, I guess, summary, a little bit rambling, but there's a lot to cover. No, I mean, how old are you, if you don't mind us asking? Because <laughs> honestly, you have lived the life, you've lived like seven lives and you're just talking about, you know, you're not that old. I mean, how old are you? I'm 33. I'll be 34 July 11th, but um, I guess I'm like a cat then if I've had seven lives, and that would make sense because my wife, um, my my wife has I inherited six cats with her, so I guess that uh, that's rubbed off on me a little bit. So it's you and the, it's basically the, your wife and seven cats around, and a baby <laughs> and a child. <laughs> well, we also now have now we have three dogs. We had farm animals at one point, so yeah, it's a little bit of everything. It's not boring. I'll tell you that much. You, you are, I think, the least boring person we've had on our show. So yeah. add that to your list of accolades. For, isn't that <laughs> wild? You're the first person to call it on a hardwired phone, but you're also the least boring of our list ever. <laughs> like, what a contradiction that is. Wow. Um, I started to take TV over to, uh, to get to the hardwire. So, so I guess a whole other bunch of things happening with that. But I mean, considering the guests that you guys have had, I consider that a very big compliment that I'd be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, oh no, for sure. Uh, this is already phenomenal. So one third of our show's beers. Uh, let's, let's have some beer. Yeah. Cracked open some. Um, Brennan, you gave us a haul, which we appreciate. Um, we always love beer. We did, uh, we're going to let you know we had to buy another shelf just to hold it. So, you know, thanks for that. Um, but little walkthrough of what you yeah. gave us, if you even remember what our haul was. We have a lot of beer. Um, you know, kind of, and liquor too, of course. Um, yeah, a lot of radiant pigs too. So um, kind of, you know, if you remember what you gave us and you want to shout out anything in particular, great. If not, incur an offering for you, for, you know, kind of what's, uh, what do you guys have on the shelves lately? Yeah, I remember I actually have a picture of what I um, sent you guys because I knew I'd forget. So I'm actually looking at the picture right now and I'm actually drinking a beer that I didn't send you that just came out about a week ago. That's my new favorite beer. So I'll give you kind of the overall philosophy and why we kind of strategically have these brands that we have and make the beers that we make. Um, so starting with Newport. So when we took over in 2017, it was called Newport Storm. And for me, as a consumer of uh, a lot of beverages, both on the low end and the high end, tying something to Newport, Rhode Island with the history that it has, um, with the Gilded Age and the mansions and the resort town in New England, I felt like we had to do something better than Newport Storm. I felt it was kind of college projecty, and the previous owners that owned it did an incredible job building a business, but we had to kind of take it to the next level. So the first thing we did was coming up with um, a name that kind of designated and planted our flag of who we were and what we were. I mean, we are a brewery and we are a distillery, so, and we're in Newport, Rhode Island, so it made sense to me that we called ourselves Newport Craft Brewing and Distilling. We, um, it actually is very unique to be a brewery and distillery. I've kind of deemed the term brew distillery. 
Um, we're probably one of the largest, if not the largest in New England. We have about <clears throat> 1,500 barrels of aging whiskey and uh, rum. Uh, we're going through a massive renovation that's going to be starting in September where we're, we're a 10,000 square foot facility. We're going to be adding about 20,000 square feet so that we can be about 100,000 barrels of capacity, but also have about 5,000 barrels of aging spirits so that we can kind of service the 33 states that we're in for the spirits and the nine for the beer. So with Newport, we've designated Braven, Newport, and Radiant Pig in almost three different categories that we go after. So Newport, to me and to our team, we almost treat like a, I don't want to use the term generic, but um, more of like a every, every person's craft brewery. So that's stylistically, that's branding, that's everything. When you look on the shelf and you see um, beer, it's almost, it's overwhelming. It's like a rainbow of designs and colors and some are crazy, some aren't. And when we were Storm, I didn't really understand the name, but I also didn't really understand the branding and it kind of seems old to me. So what we tried to do is it's almost like Helly Hansen to me, where it's like a clean cut, almost like sailor look. Um, and the beers that we have, we try to cover a lot of different styles. So I give you guys Road Trip to Start and Road Rage. Road Trip was the first beer that we really um, heavily worked on, and it's become our flagship beer on the Newport side. It's uh, it's crazy the amount that we do. I mean, it's in every huge bar and restaurant in Rhode Island, from the Tuna Oyster Bar to Black Pearl. Um, to Boston, to Connecticut. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Um, what makes it unique is there's a lot of New England IPAs that if you're transitioning from being, let's say, a, a large macro brewery IPA drinker to a craft drinker, a lot of the local IPAs can be almost overwhelming for that beginning drinker. And our malt base is very approachable. It's not overwhelming. It's not too bitter. Uh, it's not too light, but it has a lot of flavor. Uh, we use appropriate yeast with the kind of juicy flavored hops that we have, but it's not overwhelming. It's almost just like a refreshing, uh, kind of like a re refreshing mimosa on a hot day kind of beer where it's over 6% alcohol, but it's very refreshing. And the name truthfully is very catchy too. I mean, if you're in Rhode Island and you're a tourist and you see road trip on and you kind of laugh at it, you're, you're going to try it. And that's really work. And then road rage is kind of like the big uh, brother to road trip where it's a double IPA with a different malt bill and different hops. And, and that was really a beer that I'm very proud of because when we took over, it was the first new beer that we really released and we developed it over five months. We brought in a lot of restaurant owners and our distributor who's great horizon beverage. And we tested and we tested and we tested and we released a great product and it took about a year to really kick into gear, but now it's just flying almost at like a, relatively close to clip as road trip. So that's our kind of backbone. That's like our, uh, that's our Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. And uh, we had to build out our offensive line and we had, we had some misses like uh, the Andrew Thomases. Hopefully he gets better, but a couple other people. Um, but we also had some successes and we've shot our shot on a couple different things, trying to see what consumers wanted us to be. And we've really kind of come into our own where we have the, the new England IPA road trip, uh, for kind of your everyday craft drinker, we have Comfortably Unaware, which is a kind of juice bomb uh, is kind of the term where it's very citrusy. It does almost like 180 pounds of hops per 60 barrel batch. Um, it's expensive to make, but it's really, really good. And that's really more for the craft beer drinker. And then we have things like Coast, which I'm drinking right now, which is in a 12 ounce can. It's a low calorie pale ale. That's 105 calories, but it tastes like a, almost like a great um pale ale, but it's only 4% alcohol and it's kind of a crusher. And then we have 
different sours that we've done. Like I think I gave you guys Hawaiian shirt. That's a pog sour. And we're able to do this stuff now because we have a great pilot system that actually is Braven's old equipment. That's on a seven barrel small system. And with our talented brew team led by Ben Chambers, our brewmaster, um, Adam Helms, Scott Douglas, all those guys there. We, I think we honestly have, and I'm not just saying it's one of the best brew teams and production floors in the country. And I would be comfortable enough at this point to put our beer against anyone. We actually had a town and country article today that came out where um, it made Save the Robots a Radiant Pig uh, leader. I think it was the 14th best IPA in the country, which is unbelievable. But so Newport is very like you're hitting every style, very approachable. Braven, I would say, is more of like your blue moon or shock top drinker, converting them into craft beer, where our leader is a Pilsner, which is usually not a leader for a craft brewery, unless you're Jack's Abbey, because it takes longer to make, it has to be clean, and it's very uh, not cost effective, because they have to sell relatively cheap, and they take longer to make, and um, you still have to be able to push it, so it's really a volume play. And we've been kind of dancing around on how we wanted to build out this brand because we had to kind of rebuild it from the ground up. And we just came out with a beer called Summer Fridays, which I don't think you guys have, but it's a, it's a wheat beer that's more or less a better blue moon. And for this brand, we're really kind of developing into like an intro level craft uh, drinker where we're kind of converting people that would drink some of the macros, maybe like a Sam Adams drinker would really like Braven. Um, but it doesn't take away when I say these different levels of drinkers, it doesn't take away from the quality of the products or the ingredients that we go in. It's just kind of the, the, the core audience that we're going after. And then with Radiant Pig, we consider that kind of uh, the, the hardcore craft beer drinkers beer. Um, Rob did an unbelievable job building up this brand um, when we bought it and we brought him on as a partner um, we had so much demand. We didn't even know what to do with it. I mean, we couldn't, we still are kind of struggling with keeping up with the demand and it was all based around IPAs. And, um, what we had to do with Rob was kind of round out the portfolio. Like he would, one of the biggest things that he got knocked on or the brand got knocked on. And even we did when we came on in June last year was they would have these great one-off beers like own the night or TV party, but then you wouldn't get them again for four months because you just couldn't make them. It was all save the robots. And, we wanted to do something different. The brand Radiant Pig has a couple different names. RP stands for Rob Peel, but Radiant Pig also is a little kick to Basquiat, who was known as the Radiant Child. Save the Robots is a very famous bar that was, or a club that was in the East Village in the 80s that was like a art hangout, whether it was Keith Haran, Basquiat, all these amazing people. And we really deep dive heavily into the color scheme on the labels, the design on the labels and kind of make it over the top where Braven is very like industrial, like steel can with like some basic colors, Newport's kind of sailing colors, almost like sailing flags. And then Radiant Pig is just like almost street art. And that's what we want the, we call it liquid artists because we're liquid artists because the people that make the beer are artists. And then the people that the design the beer are artists. And, um, Bringing Rob on, he's been able to do a lot of the designing, but in the early years, we had a company called Lacuna uh, Newport that did an amazing job helping develop the brand. And with Radio Pig, we've kind of added a couple different styles, whether it's Secret Pastures, which is our Pilsner, um, that's actually more of like an Italian Pilsner taste because it's dry hop, but it's actually a New Zealand Pilsner. We call it Secret Pastures with uh, the Kiwi bird on it because there's all these hidden hop fields in New Zealand and Rob has this amazing tie to New Zealand and we want to have like a very light, tasteful, uh, different mouthfeel on this Pilsner. And then 
we are in the process of releasing Juicy Fruit, which is going to be our sour beer series. And we have a lot of exciting things that we're going to be doing with Radiant Pig, too. We have, um, it's going to be called World Tour. It's going to be an IPA series where we feature hops from all over the world and hopefully do collaborations with breweries in different countries. Newport, we're constantly churning out small batches. We just did a rice lager. We've done two sours. We're doing a beer for an amazing restaurant called Gusto's in Newport. Uh, that's going to be like an Italian wild ale. Um, we're doing uh, sour IPAs. We're doing all sorts of stuff. And I mean, right now with the team we have, I mean, Ben is super talented. He was a head maltster at Miller Coors for a long time. He knows how to source the best products and, and make the best beers. We have a great team around him and it's, it's very exciting. And then from the distilling side, we have two distillers that came on board. Um, we rebranded Thomas too. So we have a spice drum, single barrel and reserve. We have a 10 year reserve, which is unbelievable. It almost tastes like a bourbon. The single barrel is the official rum of the Mets with the spiced. And um, we're going to be adding a, a, a white rum or sorry, a silver rum and also something called a captain's blend, which is going to be like a Caribbean style um, dark rum. And we have a vodka, a gin and a moonshine and an Amaro. And we're going to go through a rebrand on the spirits on the clear spirit side under white squall, which is a whiteout at sea. And we're going to have a white squall, vodka, gin, moonshine. We're going to do ready to drink cocktails. So we're doing a ton of different things and it's, it's very exciting. And I think it really sets us apart from a lot of the competition. And honestly, Rhode Island has such strong brewers and breweries right now. It's, it's hard to keep up and we're not trying to um, do like 40 case one-offs. Like we're, we're a distributor first. We send our beer to nine States, but when people come into Newport and they come to the brewery, we want them to have a great experience and we try to offer that with the three brands. So we've got, we'll tell you which we've got in front of us, Brendan. We've got uh, the two Newport selections. So we intervention, both of which we're very excited for. We've got to save the robots in front of us and we've got a Bushwick in front of us too from Braden. So you tell us what you want us to do first and we're going to crack that shit open. Awesome. So Divine Intervention is actually my favorite beer that we've ever made. Um, it's a little bit different than people expect. And truthfully, it, it, it's, we made, we're only making it one time. And uh, we made about 180 cases of it. I think the label is super cool. Um, it's called Divine Intervention because it's supposed to have like a white wine taste. Um, so it's like a mix between a, a, a winery beer and a, a brewery. And it's with uh, Sauvignon Blanc grapes, um, Holotyro, sorry, Holotyro Blanc. Um, and it's supposed to have like a Sauvignon Blanc kind of feel and taste. And we use Nelson Solvin. Uh, we use all these kind of different wine hopped, uh, kind of tasty, different than like a New England IPA, but like a, you have the same kind of idea um, style wise and also malt that kind of goes really with it well. And we used, um, we sourced from the Wilmot Valley some white wine grape juice. So it has a very unique taste. Um, I, I love it. I think it's a great beer, but it's not for everyone. And, uh, then sweet is our wheat ale that we have with some orange peel that is going to be a great summer beer and, uh, robots is robots. Yeah. We, we just cracked open the vine intervention and right off the bat, I mean, the smell is phenomenal. This is a perfect light beer. I know my girlfriend will love this, so I'm definitely going to save her a can of this too. Um, no, I mean, the combination is perfect. I, I like how you pretty much, you nailed it. It's like that wine, beer, hops, and, and hops and grapes. This is this is some good stuff. So, Brendan, when you – it says, you know, obviously you guys literally just make a, an IPA and throw grape juice in it. Is it as simple as that, or what's the process with actually getting that, that grape forward to the uh, 
um, inside the mining venture. Well, I wish it was as simple as that, but I mean, brewing is, uh, I mean, we have a team that is very, very technically sound and, um, we did testing on it where we had to get the, the correct grape juice. We had to use the correct hops. We had an idea. And, the, and when we come up with beers, it's kind of like an idea board. It's like, all right, what are we trying to accomplish? Are we trying to have a beer that is going to sell out of the tasting room and people are going to really enjoy it? Are we trying to make a beer that's going to be large scale distribution? Or are we trying to just make a beer that shows how talented our brew team is and how great our graphic design artists are? This beer was actually kind of the latter. We were just like, let's not look at our cogs as much on this one. Let's go all in on like style, taste, everything, and just make the best beer we can make. And we did. I mean, technically, from when we added grape juice and what we did with the hops, I'm not a brewer. I mean, I, I would love to learn how to brew and do the process. But, I mean, our team does that, and they do an incredible job, and I taste it, and I know what I like and what I don't like. Um, so I don't know if they did it on the hot or cold side for the grape juice or when they added it. I know that they had to dry hop a lot of it on uh, the the second half of uh, the brew on the cold side. Um, and I don't know what they did in the kettle, truthfully. But what we did with it was make something very unique. And it's a hard thing to sell from a distribution standpoint because this is kind of the thing that sucks with uh, craft brewing, but it's also kind of funny. It's like other half is an incredible, incredible, incredible brewery. I've lined up for two hours to get their beer. You have that with uh, Hudson Valley. You have that with... Um, a lot of breweries like in this area, like Treehouse, Trillium, whatever, a lot of those beers are relatively similar to, I think, what we're making. Um, but because we're known more as a distribution brewery where you can get it in a store, we don't get the same amount of people kind of lining up for those willing to just sell it out quickly, give us a four and a half star rating on Untapped, and then boom, it's done. We really have to work for it. And not only that, we're rebuilding our brand from 2017 when people didn't really think of us really as a IPA brewery. They thought of us more as an Amber Ale brewery. So we really have to work our asses off to get our name out there. And you know what? Like it takes time. You can't just say that you're a better brewery than you were, or you're, you're better than this brewery. First of all, it's a complete community. I mean, there's unbelievable brewers in, in Rhode Island, whether it's at uh, Armando at long live or, uh, what Buttonwood's doing is unbelievable. Shades on, Proclamation, so sad what happened with Dave. I mean, there's there's so many, I mean, there's so many amazing breweries in Rhode Island, but every single one of them's different. And you have Whalers with the the Rise, which, I mean, that's just such an anomaly. It's, it's, it's such a huge beer. But the thing that's great about this community, it's everyone that does something special, whether it's at Tilted Barn, whether it's at Ragged Island, whether it's at Newport, it brings people into our state to try beer and it puts the state on the map. People know New England because of all the Boston and, and the Massachusetts breweries, but people are starting to come into Rhode Island. So we're actually getting more of the craft uh, community respect that we may not have had before overall, which is really exciting. You brought this up a lot and I, and I find it, you know, very interesting and very important too. You know, you built a team around you. You have a lot of people that have come from different backgrounds to help create the you know, the success that you have. You as the CEO, though, we've never really had someone in the beer industry as the CEO that wasn't the brewer. So I'd love to hear from your standpoint, you know, you're, running a, you're running an empire now, lack of a better terms. You're acquiring things, you're building this incredible brand. What would you say your biggest strengths are as the CEO? Like, 
whether it's the vision, the business standpoints, and what are some things that you hired some people along for the team to maybe help you just understand the industry a little bit more? It's a great question. And it's something that I actually think about a lot. And truthfully, when we took over in 2017, it was something that I, I realized that I needed to learn a lot more about. I liked different breweries, whether I, I went abroad to the Czech Republic and went to the Pilsner or Cal factory and really tried craft beer for the first time when I was out there when I was 20. And then coming into this community where I was a fan of it, but now I'm in it and I'm running a company was very different. And I didn't want to be perceived as just a business person. I mean, I'm a, I consider myself an artist in a lot of ways. And I consider myself being able to add value to people as one of my biggest assets in developing them. I look at myself kind of as a coach. And that's really what I've developed throughout my career. It's like I, I did the uh, junior level jobs. I did the senior level jobs. I've worked for a lot of people and I still work for our partners and our investors technically. And I have great partners and I'm fortunate that I get to work with a lot of my family. Um, but I truly see myself as a coach. And what did a coach do? I mean, Phil, Phil Jackson was an amazing basketball player, but he wasn't Michael Jordan, but he was able to coach Michael Jordan. There's a lot of, I don't think Bill Belichick played football even, but he coached Tom Brady. I mean, I don't, I'm not comparing myself to Bill Belichick or Phil Jackson, but I look at myself as a coach and I am very good at, I think my biggest skill set is getting the most out of people and, and developing people and giving people a platform that maybe they didn't have before. And one of the most valuable lessons I learned early on was checking my ego. I mean, when you're the boss, it's very easy to say you're the boss and you're in charge. And if you find that your boss is constantly yelling at you or disciplining you, it's probably for their own insecurities. I like to challenge my employees and try to get the best out of them. I'll admit when I do something wrong, but I'll also let them know when I see what they're saying, but this is the way we have to do things. And if I'm wrong, I'll own it. And I like to surround myself with people that have more experience than me in different areas. There's a lot of people that work for me that are 10 or 15 years older. That doesn't intimidate me. Um, and I also like to learn from other people's experience. We have, I think, one of the most diverse groups of people at our brewery. We have about 30 employees. I think I have uh, 10 females that work for me. Um, we try to be as diverse as possible. And I try to have as many different peoples from different backgrounds as I possibly can, because that's really what separates you. I mean, the thing that people don't realize, or maybe they do and they just don't, um, they don't grasp it enough is the fact that what's between your employees' ears, whether they're a 21-year-old person or a 7-year-old person, and the ideas that they have that may, they may not have had a platform for is your most valuable asset at your company. Your employees and the people that you work with are the most valuable, pe most valuable thing that you'll ever have. If you don't have people that love what they're doing as a brewery, which is an art form, which is in hospitality that aren't proud of what they're doing, that's going to resonate when customers come and visit with the product that's made. So what I really try to do is learn from what my employees need, see what the process is. I'll go down on the production floor and I'll help them can and I'll do stuff, but I can see what things are efficient and not efficient and communication that's working or not working and kind of put the pieces in place that work really well. And I think that when you have a company, it very much is like having a professional sports team. It's, you don't want to have five people that are Kobe. I mean, look at Kobe and Shaq. You have all these alphas that are butting heads. You want to have people that want to grow within the company, but you don't need to have um, 
everyone trying to gun for everyone else's job. Some people are just content with what they're doing. And you have to try to learn and listen to what they want out of their career and do small things to make their work environment better that maybe would be perceived as expensive, but are not in the long term. Because making an investment in your employees' mental health and, and giving them a platform and, and trying to get the best out of them and having them grow is the best return on an, an investment that you can possibly get. And I really learned that during COVID because I think before COVID, I would micromanage too much. I think I felt weird about leaving on vacation. Um, it wasn't really a trust thing. It's just that I wasn't used to it. And I had to delegate a lot of what I did on the ground to my senior managers. And there was no choice. I had to. My wife was pregnant. I couldn't go into the brewery because um, I didn't want to get COVID and get my wife sick. So I had to do a lot of stuff from Zoom. But it was an amazing experience because I was able to empower a lot of people that work for me, which has this trickle down effect of empowering other people. And then all of a sudden you have a group of people that are empowered, that are working together, that it's an unstoppable force. Like momentum is something that once you get it, it is so hard to stop. And then once it stops, it's very, very hard to get back. And talk about empowering people, especially during COVID, uh, to kind of transition into the business aspect of your job and of your endeavors. Talk about empowering people to do stuff that's just you know, way out of the scope of job. You guys, as you know, Newport Crafting and Distilling Company, totally shifted your business model during the pandemic. Of course, for those that know, um, sanitizer. Out of all things coming out of Newport Craft, um, take us through how the pandemic was for you and that endeavor and how your employees reacted there, because clearly you you had to do some leadership through through a crisis, quite literally. What was on your mind and, and how did you come out on the other end? I mean, it was uh, just like anyone else that was either just living through the COVID or running a business through COVID or employed. I mean, you guys started your podcast out of COVID. I think there's a lot of things that happen when there's a big, um, big world event that kind of shake things up and reset. And that's kind of exactly what happened with the brewery. March after St. Patty's day, um, we cut ties with our former, um, partners that started the brewery. Um, I didn't have anyone that was working on our production floor. We had a core group of employees of like maybe four or five, that were still there. We were kind of going through this transition of really who we were as, as an identity. And I went on a hiring spree. Most people were um, laying people off. And I talked to my partners and I was like, this is going to hurt for four or five months, but we have a huge opportunity right now to kind of reset our company from a personnel standpoint and build around the core that we have because so many people are losing jobs that we're going to actually be able to get some amazing people that we maybe wouldn't have been able to get before. I hired uh, our entire brew team. One was from Texas. One was from North Carolina and one was from Florida. And I think one was from South Carolina. So we relocated them. Um, we hired close to 18 people during the pandemic. And like I used it as an opportunity where I used my knowledge and finance to do things like I realized uh, hops, were something hop contracts were always a problem for us getting the contracts we always had to buy in the secondary markets so we called the ceos of several hop suppliers and um we're like listen we know that there's a pandemic going on we have we're very financially sound we have kind of a, a war chest of capital can we buy any 
anyone out of contracts that you think is not going to be able to fulfill them and we'll buy them at 40 or 50 cents on the dollar. And because of that, we were able to secure our contracts, not only in hops, but malt for the next couple of years. And that drops our cogs down. I was able to find a lot of people, but it was tough because I mean, every day there were things that were changing. It was, um, it was very, you didn't know what was going to happen next really. And, um, we, we shifted the hand sanitizer, not because our business necessarily needed it, because truthfully, we, we grew almost uh, 50% from a revenue standpoint through COVID because more people were drinking. We just, it shifted from a bottom line standpoint, because while we grew from a top line revenue standpoint by 50 or 60%, um, our net income actually was a, only a little bit higher. And that's because about 95% of the beer that we were supplying was going into cans instead of draft where it was usually 50, 50. And as you probably know, draft is much more profitable. Um, we didn't have any onsite sales for about five months because people weren't allowed to come in. So we didn't actually sell hand sanitizer. We donated it. Um, we realized that we had the capability to make it. And we essentially just wanted to help our community out because for a little while we couldn't, no one could get hand sanitizer. And getting the, the products for hand sanitizer was crazy. We had to get it on eBay. It was triple the price it should be. And we probably spent around $25,000 just getting the products and then making about, I think we made about 12,500 bottles of it. And then we would do um, either days we would, we would announce like a drop of it. And we would first go to nursing homes and um, the local fire department and police department and give out at least half of it to them. And then we would, put something out on social media where people could come pick it up from either a uh, school or the brewery and we would just kind of give it out. But it wasn't a business model change. Like um, there were some distilleries that actually shifted their whole business model to do that, but we never really had to do that because truthfully we were selling a lot of product and we were doing relatively well. It was just more of a decision we made because we felt an obligation during a crisis to help out. That's a perfect segue into another question too it really helped your brain, especially with this whole transition. You know, you took over a couple of years ago, you did a full rebrand, you're starting to acquire other companies as well. And it's all under your umbrella. What kind of advice or tips you have for developing a brand? I know importance of social media is definitely one thing, which you guys recently had your Instagram packed and had to restart, um, but you built the brand behind it that people will still follow. So what kind of tips and advice do you have for you know, companies or individuals trying to develop a brand themselves. So the social media is so important and it's something that is not my strength. Honestly, I'm only on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on TikTok. I actually thought TikTok was part of Instagram for a little bit. <laughs> my wife told me that was not the case, um, but that's the guy, people that know what they're doing with. It. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but, I mean, I, I use Instagram for my, <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I just don't fully, I, I don't, it's not that I don't get it. I just don't put enough time into it where I necessarily care because they're all the same thing to me. And I use Instagram just to kind of keep in touch with some friends and to kind of document my life with my family. And that's really it. And also to kind of follow different things, like in different hobbies I have, whether it's sports cards or sports or whatever, because it's more or less like a live feed for news. But we, when we took over the brewery, we only had, I think, 400 followers on Instagram and it was all under one umbrella. So what I did was uh, we built out the Newport one to have close to 16,000 followers, which was a huge jump. And then we separated the brands out on the spirit side to have Thomas two or Seafog 
um, so that they would be under their own umbrella and that we could have different brands getting built out. And then we had Braven and Radiant Pig. So about four months ago, we got a, we got hacked, which is crazy to think that that happens, but it did. And we got our account held ransom. We truthfully paid the ransom. It wasn't that much money, but it was a decent amount. And then we got hacked again by the same person and they just took it and shut our Instagram down and we had to start from zero. But I use this as an opportunity. There's a great book by uh, Ryan Holiday called The Obstacles of the Way. And you know what? Even though we had 16,000 followers, some of the, we weren't really, we didn't really have that engaging of a, an audience. It was more just like a follow because they maybe had gone there once. So when we restarted, it was our hardcore fans that were following us. And we have as much engagement now with, I think, 1,500 followers than we did with 1,600 or 16,000. And now we're organically growing at like 100 uh, new followers almost a week. So the audience that we have is actually much more engaged. And I mean, I'm not going to give you advice or any of the listeners advice on how to market through social media because it's not my forte and I won't pretend it is. But I know that you have to be consistent. I know that there has to be um, consistent with posting, but also consistent with what your brand looks like and what the story looks like that you're kind of, you're painting like a long picture over the course of years on social media. So when someone inevitably scrolls through, it should all make sense. Um, so with a brand, brand building, I don't think anyone is fully ever mastered. Um, but I know that you have to be truthful for what you're going after. You have to be honest with your customer base and you have to be different. And if you're a, a small brewery that's trying to be the next other half and you're going towards trying to have that model where you're going to get 200 people lining up and they're going to pay $30 a four pack, probably not going to be the best move unless you have an unbelievable product. Um, if you try to have a can with a label that is just a complete mess and there's no rhyme or reason, that won't work. But if you have subtleties like we have with Coast where we're on the New England coast or White Squall, which is a whiteout at sea, or Thomas Two, who was a famous pirate in, uh, that his boat sank in, in, in uh, the Narragansett Bay, or for Radiant Pig, if you have something like Save the Robots, which is a cool kick to uh, an old New York club, but also like a really cool kind of anime character, or with Braven having something like Summer Fridays or a Bushwick Pilsner, like if you're strategic with doing subtleties and you're not rubbing it in the consumer's face on what you're trying to do, I think it works really well. Um, you have to have something that makes sense and is kind of multidimensional. And what, but what I mean by that is you have to have something that is consistent, like on radiant pig on the top of the label, it, it's the same on all of our beers for radiant pig. You get the same thing. So if you're going to put it on the shelf, it all looks the same. Graysale actually does an unbelievable job of this. They, you had all the Graysale beers next to each other. They, they look like they're the same brand. Proc does this. Long Live does this. I mean, most successful breweries, you won't even really notice it, but they do it. I mean, Trillium, some overdo it, and then some try to do it, and it doesn't work. But um, you could do that with a company like GMP Acquisition Corp., which is our SPAC. It was funny because we knew what was the one question that all the hedge funds were going to ask. Why do you call yourselves GMP? Growth and profit the two most important things when you're um, investing in a company that you want to return on. So we could say we're growth and profit and it's something that they always remembered. And if you're doing um, a food truck, like let's say we have a pizza truck called a mono, a mono means by hand. We make everything by hand. Um, there has to be an authenticity to it. There has to be a, a rhyme and reason to why you're doing things. You should build uh, 
a, a brand guide that has the colors, the font, kind of gives you almost an algorithm to set you up and then kind of get creative within that box and do some one-offs and, and evolve it. Like if you keep, one of the things that Newport Storm failed at, in my opinion, was they redid their brand in around 2007 or 2008, and they really kept the same marketing for a decade. Like right now, we're going to go through, we're going to rebrand Newport Craft this year. And Road Trip has also been rebranded twice on the label. People don't really notice, but it's subtleties to kind of evolve the brand. You don't want to have something that's stale. You don't want to have something that gets boring. You always, the consumer has the worst ADD of any person that you've ever met. They're always looking for the next best thing, the newest thing. And you have to give them a reason to want to have your product, whether it's on the outside of the can or the inside of the can. And, you know, actually you make a few great points in there too, because one that you didn't mention that, you know, a brewery that is just widely consistent is Treehouse that comes to mind. I didn't even think about this, but they have that same little, you know, maybe one eighth of the label is just that same font with the, the beer and italics, the percentage, the style, and then a quick description. And that's how you know it's a treehouse beer. It's incredible. Um, also, you probably know it's a treehouse beer because 10 times out of 10, you've got it there. They're not in the liquor store because they obviously don't serve it there. But it's a very interesting point uh, about branding and mm -hmm. what special breweries are doing. Um, in terms of how you guys are making money, um, the, the diversity in your business model seems to be pretty, like a pretty big theme here. Um, you've acquired other breweries, um, you know, yeah. you're doing all these different endeavors too, like in, in, with investments. You mentioned the SPAC, um, you know, GNP Acquisition Corp. Um, but how, Brendan, in your opinion, do you think, I guess my question is how, uh, how important is it to, to find those other sources of revenue and to have that business mindset when you're approaching such a, such a consumer driven business like this, like why the SPACs, why the extra breweries, um, you know, what's the logic there and how does that yield more money and just more profitable branded business for you? Well, Mark, I mean, first of all, whether people want to admit it or not, making money is the most important part about a business. If you don't make money, then your business is going to die. So you always have to think about making money and, with making money, margins are the most important thing. And having consistent ways to track your inventory, uh, your accounting practices, and staying on top of it and really understanding your business in and out. I mean, everyone I've ever met has always wanted to open a bar or a restaurant. Well, it's a great idea, but unless you're on top of it every day and you don't, you don't know your margins and you understand that people are going to try to steal from you, then it's a bad idea to go into the business if you don't understand all that. Brewing is similar. I mean, <clears throat> you have to understand that one of the reasons, one of the things that we saw with, I mean, we've been very strategic with how we've acquired brands. So I'll start out on the brewing side. So if you're contracting your product out, um, at least the products that we make, um, when we purchase them, they would be on about a 6% profit margin. So you're essentially making product and breaking even because there's going to be expenses that pop up where um, that are unforeseen and you're one disaster away from going out of business or not being able to make money. Cause a lot of those smaller breweries that have to contract aren't on good credit terms, which means that you might be on COD where you have to pay to make the beer right away. So you're not able to benefit off float of like a 30 or 45 day terms. Um, so people don't, 
smaller businesses don't always think about these things. And it's something that I would consider our platform in its entirety very sophisticated from a financial standpoint. And we have all these mechanisms and these people on the back end to help us out with that. So also using debt appropriately right now is a great time to get a loan. The interest rates are unbelievable. Um, a lot of people are afraid of debt. That's an asset if you use it the right way and you don't abuse it. So when we acquired the brands, um, we bought what's called the intellectual property because they didn't have assets um, because they were contracting with Braven we essentially bought the intellectual property and then we bought their debt out of their distributors so that we could distribute with them. Now, the thing that was a little tough with that was we inherited the contracts that they had with the distributors, which are very hard to break if we wanted to. Um, and on some of our contracts, we were giving our distributors almost 35 points of uh, margin. So when you're distributing, that's another thing you have to factor in. You're giving probably between 25 and 35 points of margin to your distributor to sell the product so you don't have to deal with it. So you have to price yourself appropriately. And then if it sits and it goes bad, a lot of the times the distributor will make you buy it back. So you can get yourself in a hole really quickly. And we saw this as an advantage because we knew that our average margin for making beer was about 52%. So if we could buy these breweries or these brands and we could bring them to our brewery and we could manufacture them, we would be changing our, um, our profit margin by almost a 42 or 43% clip. And not only that, we were doing purchasing power. So when you buy more of something, you can get it cheaper generally. Um, and that's with boxes, that's with cans, that's with malt, that's with hops, kegs, what have you. Um, but we were also trying to break seasonality. Being in Newport, Rhode Island, the biggest thing that we have been up against since we took over was the fact that Newport is a seasonal vacation town. And seasonality is a dirty word that we don't like to use in our, in our company because we don't believe in it. I mean, if we have a good enough brand, it shouldn't be seasonal. People should always want to have it. There's always people living on the island. There's people in other states we distribute to. They should always be having our product. There's no reason not to. So we, by when we took over, running at about 50% capacity. And what I mean by capacity is that if we have, let's say, five 60-barrel fermentation tanks and the most beer that we can possibly make in a year is 5,000 barrels, we would be making 2,500 barrels. So that's what I mean about like the 50% capacity. So I realized that a great way to kind of break the seasonality was acquire brands that had distribution in states that weren't seasonal. So by getting Radiant Pig and by getting Braven, um, we were able to break the seasonality and run at about 90% efficiency where... We didn't have to contract for other people in the off season. Um, we didn't have to like say, Hey, it's the fall. We're only going to distill. We're not going to brew. We're able to brew full time year round. And we're very busy all, all year round. And when you have that, that helps with cash flow. So we have to look at run rates. So in the summertime, we do, we are busier out of our tasting room than the winter time. So in the summer, let's say we have 10,000 people coming a month and their average tickets, $10, we're doing a hundred thousand or so or whatever. I can't do the math right now. hundred thousand, let's just call it a business. We're in the winter. It could be, um, it could be 10,000. So our weekly run rate is going to be a lot lower in the winter than it is in the summer. And, and that's what I mean by having cash on hand that you're just getting out of your POS system. You have to rely on distributor checks that are coming in 30 days. And if they're late, that could screw up your payroll. That could screw up your, uh, payables. So, We've negotiated with our um, 
the name of the game is really having the most favorable terms on your payables and the receivables so that if we have payable terms that are 45 days and receivable terms that are 21 days, we have a window of 24 days that we're, we're making more money than we're having to pay essentially. So you want to set these things up to really make your business as efficient as possible and make it a machine that's working and always finding time and ways to put money aside, but also finding small things that you can cut from an expense standpoint. And it's not being cheap, but there's a lot of things that you can do that cause problems. Like if you give someone a credit card, like we changed how we do our corporate cards, people inherently are going to use their credit cards if you give them a limit, if it's not their own. So we were having almost 80 to $100,000 of corporate credit card expenses a year our first couple of years. And I was like, this is just crazy. Like we're not seeing a return on this. So we changed the way we do it. We're more efficient now and we spend about a fifth of the amount of money on our corporate cards. That's a salary of a person. You have to find every year those small things that you can cut, like trimming the fat to make yourself a more efficient business because you can't ever take your foot off the pedal. You always have to be having a better, first and foremost, it starts with the product. You have to have a good to great product. You have to have great people. You have to invest in the people. You have to make them happy. And then you have to run your business like a business, not like a hobby. There's a lot of people that get into this industry because it's their dream or they retired and they want to do it. And that's great if you're not trying to make money. But we're in the business of making money because I have investors and I have obligations to pay bills. And like, I'm not doing this as a joke. I want to, I want to have this be a legacy. Like we're building something where we're about to do almost an $8 million renovation at the brewery where we're going to have six acres and we're going to have a massive distillery, a massive place. That's going to be a big time regional brewery in a couple of years. I hope one day my son can run it with his uh, cousins and I hope their kids can run it. You know, we're trying to set up stuff that our family can do forever. And it's pretty cool to be in the beer business because I don't feel like I'm working and I love it. And the beer business isn't that much different than the SPAC business to me because I've now more or less put myself in, in a headspace that I treat everything the same, whether it's a restaurant, underwriting, a SPAC. It's just a mentality that you have to have where business is business and it's all really the same. Margins are important in every, every part of business. Payables and receivables are important in every aspect of business. People are important. It's just a matter of what's the product you're selling. We're going to give you a compliment because I know you're a humble guy. Um, you're brilliant as hell, for lack of a better term. So. Well, I mean, to piggyback off that, Will, it's so, it's so, you make it sound so simple because it's like, yeah, all right, we know we're, you know, uh, although the seasonality is a tough word, it's like, we need to accept the real fact that our customers might be elsewhere. So just let's go get them. Let's go get them, right? Let's go acquire the group that's serving our customers right now and let's go make them our customers. Right? It seems so simple when you dumb it down that way. Well, I mean, and I appreciate the compliments, but I mean, I think one of the things that happens is, I've been very fortunate to have really good mentors. I have my father is very successful. My father-in-law, who I also treat as my father, is very successful. One of my partners, Mike, is my mentor. I have a guy that works directly with me, JR. Um, I have a lot of people around me that know a lot of different things, and I'm very good, good at absorbing it and building their knowledge into my own ideas and also ideas that have worked in the past. I mean, there's a lot of exciting things and ways to do things and people are trying to be different. But at the end of the day, some of the most successful things that happen are simple, whether it's a social network, whether it's um, investing in water, like you have Warren Buffett invest in things that he likes to consume himself, you know? So if you kind of follow basic principles and you keep yourself in your head on 
how you need to do things and it's almost like a mental algorithm, you should be pretty successful. I mean, but that also means you have to learn from failure too. I've failed a couple of times and I celebrate that. And I, and I've been fortunate to work with people that let me celebrate it and don't fire me for it because when you fail, or at least when I fail, I learn more from that than I ever would from success. And I actually just wrote an email. I do an email biweekly to my entire company because I love writing, but I also want to make sure that they're always hearing from me. And I kind of give an update and almost like a, a, st a statement about what the market is. And I usually end on a quote or something. And um, one of the things I talked about today was adversity. And we have so much going for us right now. And we have such a great place and such a great culture. And we were blessed to have success during this time that's frankly been extremely unstable. And there's a couple of times where people just kind of get in their heads and they get pissed off about something very small that they can't control that bothers them. And how you act when there's a problem or during adversity says more about you than when you have success in a lot of ways, because when you have adversity or you get punched in the face or you get dumped or someone dies in your family or close to you, how you react and how you get up says more about you than anything else. And business and life is just about a series of events about getting knocked down and getting back up again, in my opinion. And I also look at myself as a business, honestly, like once you get to the point where you kind of remove, like a corporation is treated like a person from a tax standpoint. And I'm not saying I'm a corporation, but when I'm in business, I have to almost have a persona on how I'm acting. Like I'm not necessarily Brendan O'Donnell, like family man, I'm Brendan O'Donnell, CEO of the company. And my first instinct is always, yes, I wanna make sure my employees are taken care of and I wanna make sure people are happy, but I always have to go back to protect the business from failure, from uh, anything that, from an outside standpoint that could hurt it. And I always have to kind of go back to what's best for the business. So I have to almost look at myself as a business because I have so many businesses that I'm running and kind of treat my mentality when I work like that. And one more question before we head into uh, some sports and some, some things in your uh, passions outside of work. You made a big jump in your career when you realized you weren't happy. Um, you went from obviously the finance world, working in New York, you know, that's what, like you mentioned perfectly, it's like, what do people do in, in, with my degree and from my area? We work, we work in finance. You had that aha moment to switch. But what mm -hmm. advice do you have people that are trying to make that switch but aren't comfortable jumping into the deep end just yet? I mean, it's tough. It's like, uh, think about something you've done in your life that you were afraid of doing, right? I mean this is going to sound kind of silly, but like when I was pledging, I was scared shitless. Yeah. I mean, I knew nothing was going to happen to me, but it's a scary proposition that you could get um, character building as what we'll call it for these purposes is not necessarily a fun thing, but there is almost a militaristic style of doing it where um, it does kind of build you up and you're kind of in it together. And I'll tell you being pro console, working with the console during a meeting of 50 to 75, 18 to 22 year olds. If you can manage that, you can manage a boardroom because you got a bunch of idiots that are probably <laughs> inebriated in some different way that have all sorts of opinions that don't want to do anything. And if you can herd those cats, 
you can kind of translate that into life. So, I mean, I think it's just like anything else, like asking a girl out or a guy out on a date, going and applying for a job. Like that's all stuff that kind of pushes your comfort zone. And a lot of people get really comfortable. And I'll never forget I was on the thing that made it different for me was I used to have to trade New, Jer- New Jersey transit to work and it was miserable. Penn station is the worst place on earth. Maybe it's better now, but remember I just was sitting across from this guy, like you race to the train. You usually have like a tall boy and you're just sprinting to get a seat and hopefully no one sits next to you or you're not in three people sweating on top of you. And I was on the train on a Friday afternoon one day and there was this like 55 year old guy that was sitting across from me and he could not have looked more miserable that he was going home. He just was just, I'm like, this guy just, his life sucks. Like he hates this. And I was 23 and I was like, my life sucks and I hate this. So I don't want to do this for 20 more years. So, I mean, what's the worst case thing that can happen? And Tim Ferriss actually does this uh, um, uh, exercise. I'm blanking on what it's called right now, but it's almost like a cost analysis on your your mental space, on the the cost of not making a change and what that will do to you for um, for your mental capacity, your mental health or everything. So people kind of sacrifice their mental health because they're afraid of uncertainty. And you feel naked when you don't have a job. I mean, I, I knew what I had in my bank account when I quit, but I knew that was fixed and it was only coming down every day because I was spending money. And the proposition of going broke is something that scares a lot of people. But if you don't look at it from scaring you, but you reverse that and you look at it like, all right, this is the motivation. Like I have four months that I can find my dream job. I got to go out every day and I got to do it. If you really push yourself to do that, then you should find something. And if you don't, you can get a job being a busboy. You can get a job at a convenience store. You're, you're not going to go broke. You may have failed and maybe you have to take two years to kind of rebuild yourself. But is it worth not taking the chance? For me, it wasn't. Like I looked at it like, I mean, I was single. If I had a family now and I was saving for my kid's college fund or I had other obligations, then maybe I wouldn't have taken a chance. And I'm not going to say that I wasn't very fortunate and lucky where I could live in my parents' house and save money and I could afford to fail, honestly. But most people that have gone from good to great also go from mediocre to happy. And that's what really happened with me too, because I was not happy. And honestly, not a lot of men, especially really talk about their mental health and being a small fish in a big pond in New York where you were formerly a big fish in a small pond hurts the ego a little bit after a while and not feeling like you're successful hurts the ego after a little while. And if you get beaten down enough, you get out of shape. You're not going to find a wife. Maybe you're going to have a drinking problem. Like it's a domino effect that you don't want to go down. And if you don't take that chance, I almost look at it as life or death. You know, it was a life or death thing for me because if I didn't take it, I was going to be, I have one life to live. I'm going to be miserable. And I'm not going to have the balls to do something that I've always wanted to do. And um, for me, it was life or death. And not that I was suicidal by any means. I'm not saying it like that. It was more, I wanted to live my best life because I could die any day. And I wanted to be happy. And I wanted to feel fulfilled. And the only way I was going to do that is if I could control my own destiny. Yeah. And that's that's phenomenal advice for anybody. I think, especially um, during these times, too, right. people are losing their jobs or not happy. And the pandemic's, you know, taking a toll on people's mental health. I mean, it's very important to, 
you know, say what you just say. So we definitely appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. And, and I guess to, to kind of tie the bow on this before we get into sports and, and the fun stuff, what is something that you wish right now coming from this version of you that you heard back in the day when your journey began? Like what, what did you think you needed to hear at that point that you might've heard, you might not have heard um, your, your quick 30 second version of, of what the advice that you that you wish that you had when you're doing again? To not take myself so seriously, probably. Um, even though I was always kind of joking with people, I was very serious a lot. Like I, I thought I had a very serious job. I thought that when you became an adult, you had to be serious. And I put a lot of pressure on myself by forcing myself to try to be someone I'm not. I think at the end of the day, everyone is who they are. And that's what makes, makes people unique and great. And if you don't embrace who you are, then you're never going to be fully happy or successful. And I didn't really know who I was as a person until I took that big leap of faith and quit my job. And now I'm doing something that I love. I've, I have a family that I built. I have a family that I already was a part of. And now I have a second family with my in-laws. I work with great people. Um, I get to affect other people's lives. I mean, a lot of my job too, and I take it extremely seriously is I have people's livelihoods in my hands, you know, like I have 30 people at the brewery that rely on a paycheck that if it doesn't come, could really mess things up for them. And I don't take that lightly. It's a huge burden to bear. And you have to have that kind of gauge to be a successful manager or CEO or president, whatever. And, um, I just think that even with that responsibility now, I'm so confident in knowing how to deal with it, that it doesn't even phase me because I really, I think I'm the best version of myself at this moment because I put in the mental work to get there and to touch on the mental health thing just a bit, people don't really practice being happy because it's not really taught. But I mean, doing simple things, there's so many different like apps you can use, podcasts, exercises, whatever, to practice your mental health. Like if you're even working out, let's say 30 minutes a day, if you take 15 minutes every day and just tell yourself how good you are or like think about the positive things that you did in a day, it, it affects you. I mean, your, your, your mind is, it's like an iceberg, 95% of it's below the sea and you have to build your subconscious out so that it affects your consciousness so that you're happy. You know, it's like a, it's like a machine. If the cogs are broken in the subconscious, it's going to affect the conscious and you have to put in that work to do that. It's not, it doesn't just happen. You know, people think that like Mark Zuckerberg or like Elon Musk or these people just like got lucky or Jeff Bezos. They didn't, they think differently. They do things differently. A lot of CEOs are dyslexic. And I know a lot of people that are, billionaires that are dyslexic. And that's actually an advantage because they look at the world differently. They may not be able to read a book like you do, but they can think about the world a lot differently than they did, than, than you do. And maybe that's the secret to success is looking at things differently. And if you're going to be successful, you can't look at the world the same way everyone else does. Because if everyone looked at the world the same way you did, then what makes you different? You know. On top of all the hats you wear and all the incredible stuff you're doing with Newport Craft and brands, you have some side passions and hobbies as well. 
Uh, one of the biggest being sports cards and like the trading aspect of that. What is the best card you have in your collection right now? Or you might have pulled it. You might not have it anymore. What is the best card you, you have in your hands? I love baseball cards. I mean, in sports cards. I'm so happy that they're making a comeback. I mean, um, my father-in-law is a huge car collector. And the thing that is cool about cars is they turn adult men and women into kids again because you have that experience that brings you back to the first kind of car you had. Baseball cards are the same thing for me. I used to save up my allowance. I'd go to baseball card shops and try to rip packs and get like a player that I liked. And I didn't really put too much thought into it. I sold my collection when I was like 22 years old because I wanted to have extra cash. And I wish I didn't because I had a ton of like pristine Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Derek Jeter cards that are probably worth hundreds of thousands of dollars today. Um, but I restarted my card collecting uh, about two years ago. And um, I have a very like kind of algorithmic way of doing it. And it's probably because I have OCD, probably because it like helps me relax. But with baseball, I only buy cards in March. And uh, it's hard to do, but I only buy cards in March because it's right before spring training starts. And it's when a lot of the um, Bowman first prospects come out and it's where people aren't really paying attention. So you can get the cards at the lowest price and then I hold them. And what I'll do is I'll try to find one rookie every year that I'll maybe buy 10 of his cards. And at the end of the season, let's say I spend $50,000 on cards. What I'll do is I'll try to make $50,000 off the cards that I sold of that one player so that I keep one of his cards and I sell the rest. So it's like I didn't spend any money and I'm just kind of compounding my card collection. So I look at it very kind of algorithmically. Like right now I'm buying basketball cards because the NFL draft is going on. Like I bought a Luka Donick rookie card that usually goes for upwards of $15,000 as a PSA gem in 10 for 4,500 bucks the other day. And I know if they make the playoffs, it's going to go back up to 15,000. I'm not like a, I don't really like to sell cards. I like to hold them because I love them. But my favorite card it's actually a really cool story. I am um, obsessed with Miguel Cabrera, unhealthily. Um, I'm a Yankees fan. I mean, we but I became Yankees. a Miguel Cabrera fan when he was 19 in the world. That would be what? If Miguel Cabrera was a Yankee, we've that, talked about this for weeks. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, that, that is one guy we wish was. So, Miguel Cabrera is my all-time favorite player, and the reason is because. Uh, so when he was 18 or 19 years old, he was on the Marlins and this, uh, they were playing the world series versus the Yankees and he was facing Clemens and Clemens being the asshole that he is threw out his head and, uh, knocked Miguel Cabrera down this 18 year old Venezuelan prospect. First guy to back cleanup in the world series as an 18 year old or 19 year old. I can't remember which, which it was knocked him down. Cabrera stood back up and kind of stared him down. And I was like, Oh shit. Like something's about to go down next pitch. Cabrera lit him up and hit it over the center field wall and trotted around the bases and stared him down. And I was like, damn, this guy is kind of a badass. So I started following him. And then like, he kind of seemed like a wacky, like funny guy. And I could kind of relate to him in a weird way. And I was like, people aren't following how good this guy is because they're so obsessed with Pujols. And like he, if he hadn't gotten hurt, he'd have better stats than Pujols. But I mean, like right now he's 12 home runs short of 500 He's 150 hits short of 3,000, and he's like 400 RBI short of 2,000. And there's only five players, I think, ever to have 500 home runs, 3,000 hits, and bat 300. And that number is even smaller if he could get to 2,000 RBIs, which he's not going to. But, I mean, you're talking about like Pujols, Hank Aaron, 
Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, like crazy company. And he's just very underappreciated because he's kind of seen as a clown and a funny guy and overweight. He had some drinking problems, but he's such a pure hitter and it's unbelievable. And so his rookie card was a 2000 tops traded autograph. And the first big autograph rookie card was a 2001 Bowman Chrome Albert Pujols, which I do have um, a mint nine of. And, but people kind of overlooked the 2000 tops traded and because Miguel Cabrera's wasn't really limited, they don't know how big the population of it was. It could be 5,000 cards. It could be 10,000 cards. No one really knows. So when I was collecting them, they were like 500 bucks, which was expensive at the time, but it wasn't breaking the bank. It wasn't like something like the pool hole one, which was like 15 or 20,000. So I, the thing with the card was you could never find them in gem mint condition. And what I mean by that is for PSA to be a 10, not like a nine or a BGS 9.5. You can go on the websites now and kind of see how many there are in the world. So I think that there's 13 PSA uh, Miguel Cabrera gem mint 10s. And 13 is actually my lucky number. And as I started collecting cards again, I didn't have any Miguel Cabrera's because I sold off my collection. And I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for one of these cards to come up. And literally would search eBay every night to my, my wife would just be like, why are you always on eBay? Get off eBay. So the night before my son was born on October 27th, I was like, holy shit. Someone put up a one day auction for a Miguel Cabrera gem mint 10 top traded. I was like, Tessa, I was like, I gotta, I gotta buy this. I don't care what price it goes to. I'm, I'm going to buy it. And I was like, this thing could go for like $20,000. I hope it doesn't. But Miguel Cabrera being Miguel Cabrera, no one really paid attention to it. And I got it for like, I got it on the day my son was born, the morning he was born in the hospital. I had to go out and get Wi-Fi in the hospital um, for like 3000 bucks, which is a ton of money. But now that people kind of realized what he's about to do, that card recently sold on eBay for $82,000. So oh like that is my favorite card. And that's my favorite card, but I have ones like Juan Soto's or Fernando Tatis or some other people that are more valuable, but I have such a, I, I will never ever sell that card because I got it when it was on my son's birthday. I have a special connection to Miguel Cabrera and that's really what in, in baseball cards are all about. It's like you have a connection to it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're like speechless. I mean, that, <laughs> that story is just so, I mean, it's so it's sentimental to you. Story. It's, all, it's time. all time. The money behind it too is just crazy. Like that is some wicked cool stuff. What is like, 80, yeah. yeah. What's a $79,000 profit on that? That's like, uh, I, I don't even know the percentage. That's nuts. That's literally nuts. Oh my God. I don't know. Probably like 60. Yeah. It's crazy. But I don't even, honestly, I don't even care about it because like, I was just so blown away. Like, the fact that I, I had been waiting on this card for almost three years, and I didn't see one come up on eBay until the day my son was born. I was like, okay, like, this has to be some kind of a sign. <laughs> That's some crazy stuff. That is some crazy stuff. Wow. Um, <laughs> We're just trying to collect our thoughts. Yeah. Jesus. I mean, let's... You got anything else on sporting cards or should we just move <laughs> on to some NFL draft previews? I mean, your luck is uh, pretty good. So maybe you can predict who the Giants are going to grab at uh, number 11. And well, just to qualify this, to, you know, we're yeah, I know. We are recording this before the, like, you know, I'd say 20 minutes before the NFL draft starts. And by the time we run it, it's going to happen already. So uh, a lot of pressure's on you, Brendan. <laughs> um, what do you I know. It's going to do. What are the I know. We got to, we're going to have to soften a little bit. 
we're going to have to get off in a little bit because we got to, I mean, the NFL draft is literally my favorite thing in the world to watch. So I definitely am going to be uh, getting off in a little bit to Absolutely. do that. But uh, I don't know. I mean, the Giants are in this unique position where they actually can make a choice. Now, can Dave Gettleman make the right choice? Does he know how to use a computer? Is he going to have that 300 page binder? Um, I don't know. I mean, Dave Gettleman, I love, and I also hate, like I love Saquon. I hated the Daniel Jones pick, but now I actually kind of like it. I think the O-line is actually much better than people think. Um, I don't know if we go for someone like Mika Parsons, the linebacker out of Penn State, and we have this like just Lawrence Taylor type specimen that we can have for the next 15 years. Or if we go after like Devonta Smith or one of the Alabama wide receivers that could maybe fall to us like Jamar or LSU like Jamar Chase. I mean, I wish we could get uh, Pitts to tighten that of Florida because he's just such a freak. And I'm excited to definitely draft him in fantasy because I just think he's going to be un, un like you're not going to be able to, how do you even cover a guy like that? It's Michael Jordan or LeBron James running down the field faster than the guys that are 5'11", 180. Um, but I would also kind of be happy if we got an edge guy like the, the Michigan D end, or if we got another O line. I mean, I, I, I'm not really worried about the first round pick. Honestly, I'm more, interested in what happens in the second round when we get that value like we did with uh alabama last year where we traded up for the late first round pick and um blanking on his name the safety out of alabama that we got but like those kind of value picks i love i mean second third round i think is where we can really make a difference yeah and I, i mean i love jabril peppers and i think that we are a piece or two away on the defense, but we can't overlook the offense. And I mean, for Daniel Jones to get a fair shot, I think we need to get him another weapon. Like, I mean, it's great. It's great. This stuff that we did in the off season, but you need to have several weapons and you need to have those kind of shifty receivers now where I don't care if Devonta Smith is 170 pounds. I mean, you can't touch him. I mean, he's untouchable and he knows how to run routes. And if we give Daniel Jones a couple weapons, if he has Saquon Barkley, Devonta Smith, um, the, the wide receiver we got in the offseason, Galladay, uh, and we have Evan Ingram, if he can actually catch a ball, and Daniel Jones still can't produce, then let's get another quarterback. But we have to give him a legitimate shot and weapons, you know? No, I totally agree, especially how Gettleman found so much value in the later rounds with offensive line last year, and Shane Lemieux and Matt, um, Matt Burt, I believe his name is. Um we should not be doing an offensive yeah. lineman in the first round unless it's this Panay Sewell guy from Oregon. I don't think anybody else is even worth considering. I mean, there is some talent, don't get me wrong, but you can find that in the later rounds. I would love either Mika Parsons. I agree. It's kind of a deep, yeah. Yeah, no, Mika Parsons on the defense would be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a deep. Oh, so good. And, like, to, to, to line them up with um, – the team we already have out there would be great. And I think that the O-line is deep and we don't have any of those, like, like last year where there was like six guys that could have gone in the top 10, but you have consistency. Like you could get white, uh, whitehead who the Alabama O-lineman in the late second round. There's um, another guy out of like a division two school that's rose up. Like there's a lot of guys that are kind of like freaks that you could get. And people also forget we got that UConn, O-lineman last year, the guy that's like 6'9", and he was like 280, and I think he put on like 30 or 40 pounds, and he's developing, and 
I mean, I think we're going to have a pretty solid O-line. I think it's just we got to give Daniel Jones a weapon to compete because with this league now, it's not like the Ravens when they won the Super Bowl where you can get away with putting up 12 or 13 points. Like, you have to be able to put up, like, 28 points. I mean, defense, if they can hold the team to under 21 points, you should be able to win, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, definitely agreed. A lot of surprises in this NFL draft, hopefully. Um, Again, we're going to run this and – draft's going to be over so <laughs> we're going to look back at this and be like what the fuck are we talking about but um, yeah funny stuff um real quick before we let you go um, i mean i have oh yeah go ahead go ahead i have the I, one, one thing i'll say too is i'm in a very competitive fantasy football league it's actually our 21st season and we do keepers you can keep up to seven people and you can keep the person around you drafted them and and i just like went on a I, I haven't won in like three or four years, so I'm pretty much starting myself over. But I have the first pick for the first time in a long time, so I'm very keen on where Najee Harris goes because if he goes to the Jets, I'm not going to pick him. But if he goes to like the Steelers or the Dolphins, I think he's kind of a generational talent, so we'll see what happens with that. I mean, yeah, you just said you were in that for how many years? So yeah, you got to yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to pick the generational talent. Yeah, but also, I mean, you also make the point before Kyle Pitts. Kyle Pitts could get something. He's this talent that everyone's talking about. He could be. He could be something else. Yeah. Exactly. So, what was your last question? Yeah. <laughs> Couple of last closeout questions before we let you go. We want to know, uh, you know, if you've got stigma kind memories offhand that you had at Roanoke. Uh, you mentioned you were the vice president of the fraternity. Um, anything that stands out or was fun, challenging, you know generally memorable whatever you've got for us would be beyond appreciated well 95 percent of them i can't say on a public podcast (laughs) (laughs) but uh one one that definitely stands out was um so we were in salem virginia and jj reddick was uh at duke at the time and he was a pretty big asshole and everyone hates duke so he was from Roanoke, um, the area, and he came to one of our fraternity parties and played beer pong versus us. And uh, the guy that was my big brother in the fraternity, Sean, and I beat him. And I was pretty happy about it, and I made sure he knew. And I almost got my ass kicked because of it, but I was very happy with myself. Oh, no. Oh, no. Was it, did, you like, did you kick your ass, or was it close? Like, was J.J. Reddick like, was he stepping back a couple of feet and like, you know, look at my range. Like, what? how'd that go down? I mean, he had, it was one of those times where, um, I mean, I definitely had some liquid courage. And <laughs> I think we like right out of the gate, like he wasn't expecting us to kind of like mess with him. And I think Sean, the guy I was playing with, bounced it and got in right away. So we were like two cups up immediately. I think we started out like, freakishly where we had like three straight turns of making cups i think it was like 10-4 after like three turns and he was just like what the fuck <laughs> so he he actually to his credit was not down but we were we were just so hot like i think i had so much adrenaline from playing versus him that i was just like this is what we're gonna do but i also ran into matt mcconaughey at uh the world's largest tailgate florida georgia and as you probably know he was a sigma chi and I gave him the handshake, and he, he said, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> no, he didn't. No way. No way. <laughs> I mean, like God. I said, you, yes, you, you, are, you were the cat with nine lives. You have lived it all. Um, 
<laughs> Anything you say at this point, we're just like, yep, no, no kidding. McConaughey. Yeah. Oh my god, that's the icing on the cake. That is the icing on the cake. Uh, well, we don't want to take probably a-, a good place to end it too, right? <laughs> What'd you say? Sorry. It's probably a good place to end it on a McConaughey story. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, Brent. Uh, we want to know what the summer at Newport Crafts is going to look like. And this is the opportunity for you to plug any promotions, whether it's for yourself, some personal stuff, or the brand itself. The floor is yours. So for this summer, we actually just, uh, we're starting our big construction project in September. But we, we have a pavilion in the back in the outdoor area that we've completely, like, really redone. We we made like uh, the landscaping beautiful. We added enough space where you can have like 14 picnic tables comfortably can have about 250 or 300 people back there. And it's beautiful. You can actually on the Hill oversee uh, the Pell bridge and the water. It's, it's awesome. We have TVs out there so you can watch sports games. And we have, we have a program now with our pilot system where we're doing beers that are made specialty for on site, whether it's like rice lagers or sours and, I just think it's going to be a really special summer for us because I think it's going to be a big leap forward from uh, people really recognizing how good of a product we actually make. And I think Coast, our low-calorie pale ale, is going to really take off. Um, everything we're doing with Radiant Pig, with the Sours, and Braven with the Summer Fridays, and being the official rum of the Mets, um, it's kind of cool when you watch a game and you see all the marketing come up with Braven and, and Thomas it. But, I mean, I would say that uh, give our products a shot. I mean, there's a lot of people that have a lot of great products out there and you get in patterns of what you consume. And all I would ask is just let our product speak for itself. Our production team makes an amazing uh, beer, an amazing spirit. And it's, I think it's top notch. And if you don't agree, that's fine, but at least just give it a shot. And then um, just in around Newport, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on this summer. There's a lot of restaurants that are reopening and there's a lot of people that have worked really hard over the pandemic that uh, need people to come in for their businesses to survive. So I think my selling point would be come into Newport. I mean, people think of Newport as this uber wealthy place and there are some people like that, but there are a lot of people that live locally that got hit hard during the pandemic with within hospitality. And if you're thinking about having a night in on a Saturday, maybe don't maybe go in and have a, have a nice dinner at one of the restaurants around Newport, whether it's mine or whether my family's or whether it's a food truck or a, a restaurant down on Dame street. Um, make sure you go and you, you support those people. And if service is a little slower, it's because there's, it's hard to come by workers because there's no J ones, which are international people. So just be patient with people in hospitality. They've gone through a lot, just like everyone else. Um, they're some of the hardest working, most resilient people in the world. And, I would just say across the board, whether you're in New York, whether you're in Ohio, whether you're in California, um, go to your local restaurants, support your local businesses and, and be patient with them because they're just like you. They're trying to survive through this. And even though you're out there spending your own money, it's supporting them and their families. Brendan, we can't thank you enough for spending what you did with us. Um, we're going to toss the floor back to you. Where can our listeners engage with your content, find you guys on social media? How can they keep up with your work craft and all the things you do? So on Instagram, which is our biggest platform, it would be at Newport Craft, um, at Brave and Brewing, at Radiant Pig uh, Beer, and at Thomas Drew Rums and at Seafog Spirits. Uh, we have Facebook for Newport Craft as well. Um, then we have our websites, obviously, where you can kind of find live updates on everything. And 
We're also building out a YouTube channel. We're, we're quietly filming a documentary about our, our build out that we're filming every week, a couple hours. And over the next year and a half, we're going to edit and do like the making of a brewery. So we're going to start updating our YouTube channel with that. And, um, all of our socials will kind of follow that as well. So much appreciated if you, uh, follow it. I promise we'll have some good content and, uh, we'll be doing giveaways and some other things. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy Virginia. Enjoy the draft. Enjoy the time with the family. We can't wait to head down to Newport Craft and other locations throughout the summer while things are calming down. And we are excited to have you on the show and we appreciate it yet again. So thank you. Take care. and We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. I love what you guys are doing. And you're a prime example of what I was talking about is taking a chance and using an opportunity to the pandemic to do something that you're passionate about. So keep doing what you're doing and pretend like every audience you have is like talking to a million people and eventually you'll get there, you know, just be consistent every week. And you guys, you guys are doing a great job. I've already listened to a couple of podcasts and just keep going, keep rolling, you know, don't give up on it. We appreciate it, Tom. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. And that was just Brendan O'Donnell, the man, the myth, the legend, really. He, I mean, if you weren't impressed by that story as we were, I, I don't know what you enjoy. I mean, that covered everything we love in this podcast, beer, business, and balls. He has some of the coolest stories ever. You know, I was starting to get more impressed with the trading cards by the end of the interview rather than his introduction into the craft beer and, you know, how he's growing the business and his brand. I mean, when he was talking about, started talking about dropping tens of thousands of dollars on baseball cards, I was like, this guy's the real deal. I was going to say, have you ever even imagined like making a $79,000 profit off a baseball card? No. Was it 79? Yeah. Is it 78 or 79 on his son's birthday? Walking out, selling this card for so much money. I mean, imagine when um, Miggy gets into the Hall of Fame. I know. I think it's going to be... Well, whenever he retires. Did he say, like, double that? He said Uh, something. Something, yeah. Oh. Oh, my God. Like, and I get it. You know, the sentimental value is something because it's like... You know, how do you really put a dollar value on something like that? With a card that means so much to you, followed you everywhere. But, I mean, money talks and bullshit walks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a... That's a great profit, and um, you know overall, what a what an incredible interview that we had with Brendan. Very cool stories, and excited to to do some stuff in person. I can't wait to go back to Newport Craft because they've really they've really upped their game. Have you been recently? I, I, I went. I, I went in January, Valentine's Day. Yeah, Valentine's Day, and I was like. It was some cool stuff. I mean, we didn't get the full experience because it was cold and still COVID times and everything, but we, we made a quick stop there. And I mean, I've been drinking their beer for years, even when it was, I, I still enjoyed some of the Newport Storm stuff. Um, and I mean, you see road rage everywhere and Newport has definitely taken a huge step, not only in Rhode Island, but the whole East Coast. So you're seeing them come up everywhere. I was actually very impressed with all of like the spirits and the distillery side. Mm. Uh, when they did the partnership with the Mets, you know, I've noticed that rum brand, uh, I forgot which one is the actual Mets, the, the, the official partner of the Mets, but I saw it, you know, the commercials and the billboards, and I never put two and two together until he mentioned it. And I'm like, oh, wow, like they're making huge strides. Yeah, it's Thomas Two. Thomas, Thomas Two rum, and we have a bottle of it, I think, as well. That's a pretty recent partnership, too, that, you know, Brennan obviously talked about, but... You get Thomas Two Rum, 
pretty much anywhere in Rhode Island, and it, now it's the official rum of the New York Mets. That's really cool. You know, I, I might get a rum and coke the next time I'm at City Field. <laughs> that is it for episode 49. You can catch us next week, episode 50. Obviously, I feel like we say this every week, but we've got a, some some great guests coming up. Great guests that still have yet to be recorded as well. That'll do it from us. Thanks for watching or listening to Beers, Business, and Balls, presented by House Enterprise and Anchor. That's Will and I'm Jake. So long, folks. Take it easy.